Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. It is just God's good timing and providence that we end up in the section of Jeremiah tonight that we end up in. Chapter 23 is a long chapter, and it is divided into two parts. The first third, roughly, if not a quarter of it, has to do with the coming Messiah and the regathering of Israel. And that's what we're going to concentrate on tonight. Next week, we will get to the false prophets and God's denunciation of them. But tonight is just really providential that we're looking at this particular section of Jeremiah, considering the things that are going on in the world right now. The war in the Middle East continues, and the whole world and the nations of the world are lining up for or against Israel. And then, even stranger, the Christian church world is also dividing along those same lines for or against Israel. In fact, a rather prominent post-millennialist made a video this week that a few people sent me in which he rather emotionally argued that because the church is now the new and spiritual Israel, which is language that you don't find anywhere in the Bible, the Bible never calls the church true Israel or spiritual Israel, That doesn't exist. But he argued that because the Jews today are so hateful toward Christians that they cannot be the people of God, and therefore the church becomes the new Israel. Well, that really flies in the face of everything we're going to look at tonight, starting here in Jeremiah 23. And as I said, we're just going to concentrate on this one concept tonight. I was going to try to cover this whole chapter tonight And midday today, boy, it was like God tapped me on the forehead and said, don't miss this. Just concentrate on this. And so tonight, I come loaded for bear. It's an embarrassment of riches. If you're going to say that God is going to remain consistent and faithful to Israel and that he plans to regather them again, well, that just runs all the way through the Old Testament and is certainly the foundation for many of the things that Paul says in the New Testament. And so the idea that God has abandoned Israel is really untenable to me because, first off, that is declaring that God has changed. He changed his mind. He made promises to certain people, called them beloved, called them elect, married them, and then said that they were his chosen people out of all the people on the planet, and then at some point just changed his mind in favor of a spiritualized version of them within the church of Gentiles later on. That's a really difficult position for me to get a hold of, and I think by the time we get done tonight, you're going to find it untenable as well, because these promises are so consistent. I have said for many, many years that the Old Testament prophets 
all speak with one voice. The major and the minor prophets, as we're going to see tonight, all speak with one voice about God's faithfulness to national Israel. Now, in order to look at all these passages, we have to remember historically the division within Israel. During the time of Solomon, because Solomon chased after foreign women and worshiped their gods, for that reason, God said that the kingdom was going to be taken away from him, or at least from his son, and that the ten northern tribes were going to become a separate kingdom, which they did, had their own king. But then, for the sake of promises that God had made to David, he left the lineage of David, Judah, and Benjamin, and the priests of Levi that worshipped and worked there in the temple. And so um, that language throughout the Bible, house of Israel and house of Judah, is a designation of those two divisions within the kingdom. Whenever you see house of Israel, sometimes it means collective 12 tribes. Most of the time it means those northern tribes as distinct from those southern tribes who are called the house of Judah. So you see this Israel and Judah thing a lot. Sometimes the northern tribes are referred to as Ephraim. Sometimes they're referred to as Mount Ephraim. Sometimes they're referred to as Samaria. They have a couple of other nicknames to designate or to separate them from Judah, the southern kingdom. And the reason that's important is because so many of these promises tonight are not only going to be about the restoration of Judah, which is one of the themes of the book of Jeremiah. But God is going to take the time to say, and I'm going to go get Ephraim, and I'm going to go get the house of Israel, and I'm going to go get those northern tribes. Wherever I have scattered them, I'm going to go get them and bring them back to their land. So it is impossible to read that historic reality, the division of the 12 tribes, and then the different names Ephraim and Judah, and then say that somehow the church satisfies the entirety of those 12 tribes. There's just no way to do that, especially in light of the promises that we're going to look at tonight, where God says, house of Israel, house of Judah, all 12 tribes, going to gather them, going to establish them in their land. That is all very physical because these are the same people who he says, because I'm the one that scattered you, because I'm the one that punished you. And so Israel, collectively, 12 tribes, are the very people that he punished, that he scattered. That's not the church. There's no way to say that the church has undergone this kind of divorce from God and this kind of putting away and this kind of punishment. But it is those particular people who are the people that God keeps saying he's going to regather and be faithful to. So as we look at the language tonight, just keep asking yourself whether or not this could possibly be a reference to the Gentile church later on. Got it? Okay, that was all introduction. We have so far to go, and here I am talking away. Chapter 23 of the book of Jeremiah, starting at the first verse. Last week, we looked at the previous two chapters where God was decrying the last five kings of Judah, who we referred to as his shepherds. Woe to the shepherds, says verse 1, who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. 
declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel. By the way, it's a really important bit of nomenclature. God is going to use that language a lot, that he is the God of Israel, especially when he is talking about why he punished them and how he is going to reestablish them. He uses that language, because I am the God of Israel. And one of the consistent promises you're going to see from the God of Israel is those people, Israel, will be my people. I will be their God. And so this name, the God of Israel, is really important. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. And then I myself shall gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I shall bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. And I shall also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David, because he's made that covenant, that promise with David, that the house of David would always have someone sitting on the throne, judging, ruling, being king over the 12 tribes of Israel. So behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And that is in direct contradiction opposition to the previous two chapters where there were just bad kings after bad kings after bad kings. And so God, knowing, as I said last week, knowing the inability of human beings to successfully govern themselves, said, you know what? I'll do it. I'll take care of it. I'm going to send you my own son, a branch of the lineage of David, and he's going to be a righteous king, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Now, that's very important language, because he's not saying Jesus right now is sitting in heaven at the right hand of God, which is somehow spiritually David's throne, even though David never ruled from heaven, and that he's ruling in some spiritual sense, even right now. Instead, the promise is that he's going to reign as a king after the lineage of David from David's throne, which is in Jerusalem. He's going to reign as a king and act wisely, and he's going to do justice and righteousness in the land. These are earthly references. He's actually going to be in Jerusalem, in that land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In his days... Judah will be saved. Well, that's thematic to the book of Jeremiah. But then notice the next sentence. And Israel will dwell safely. So now God is talking way beyond just the return from the Babylonian captivity. He is now declaring that even those northern tribes that he has scattered ever since the Assyrian captivity are also going to be regathered. And they're going to dwell in their own land Christ will be their king. Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he is called. The Lord, Yahweh, our righteousness. 
Okay, so now we know that this is obviously a Christological reference, that it's Christ himself who is the descendant of David, who is going to sit on the throne. And I know last week as we were finishing that I said we would take a look at the lineages tonight from Matthew and Luke, and I'd show you that little bit of intrigue, but for sake of time tonight, I'm just not going to do that. We're going to hold that for next week. I just want to concentrate on this one thing. In his days, Judah will be saved. In what days? In the day of Christ, when Christ comes back with his rod of iron, when Christ sets up his throne, his kingdom ruling from Jerusalem, in those days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Now that one single passage completely obliterates all of the online arguments about God being done with Israel because Christ has not returned yet and he has not been a king yet in the land. He has not yet been that righteous branch of David sitting on David's throne. He has not accomplished all of that yet, which means there is still a day out ahead of us, which is why God said, behold, the days are coming when he's going to do all of this. He hasn't done it yet. But in his days, Judah will be saved. So what are we going to say about emotional videos of Jews in Israel right now uh, hating Christians? What are we going to say about that? Well, we're going to say exactly what Paul said, which is, well, they're blinded. They don't know. But the day is coming, as we're going to see repeatedly tonight, But the day is coming when God is going to open their eyes and put his spirit inside them and give them a new heart. And they will be his people and he will be their God. So in the days of Christ, when he is king in Jerusalem, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely and his name will be called the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say... As the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. The day is coming when they're no longer going to identify the God of Israel as that God who took Israel out of Egypt. But instead, verse 8, they will say, as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the Northland and from all the countries where I have driven them, and then they will live on their own soil. That's very, very physical. They're going to be in their own land. He's going to be king in the land, and they're going to live on their own soil, on their own dirt, the land that God has promised to them specifically. And he's going to lead back the descendants of the household of Israel from the Northland. Those are those northern ten lost tribes, as we refer to them. God knows where they are. I have seen so many arguments from people saying, well, these people have been scattered, and they have intermarried, and they have lost their sense of who they are. They've lost their heritage. They're not keeping their genealogies. And, of course, the answer to that is, uh, is anything too hard for God? He knows who they are. He knows where they are. He's keeping track of them, and he's going to go get them. Otherwise, what we just read is a lie. And since this is the very word of God and God doesn't change, it's very difficult for me to believe that God suddenly one day said, you know what, that whole Israel promise thing that I said repeatedly, repeatedly in the Old Testament, 
I didn't mean that. I meant something else. Okay, so long as we're in Jeremiah, flip forward just a couple chapters here. Flip forward to Jeremiah 31. We're going to look at these things in more detail in the weeks to come, but let me just give you a sense of what's coming in Jeremiah. Chapter 31, starting at verse 7. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness. For whom? For Jacob. Who's Jacob? Israel. Israel. Sing aloud for Jacob. Shout among the chiefs of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I am bringing them from the north country, and I will gather them from the remotest parts of the earth. Among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and she who is in labor with child together, a great company, and they will return here. With weeping they shall come, and by supplication I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of water, on the straight path in which they will not stumble, for I am father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. So he's talking about Judah, the southern tribe, Ephraim, the northern tribes, and still declaring that he hasn't forgotten Ephraim. That's his firstborn. That's the one who has the land promise. And without those northern tribes being regathered and planted in their land, God cannot keep the land promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because that promise, that covenant, that right of the firstborn went to Ephraim. And so he has to regather them. With weeping they shall come, and by supplication. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlands afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob. He has paid for Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. For they shall come and shout for joy on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil, and over the young of the flock and of the herd, and their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall never languish again. And then the virgin shall rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy, and will comfort them, and give them joy for their sorrow. And I will fill the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Do you think he meant that? Oh, yes. Yeah, he intends to do that. Keep going, Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32, I'm going to start reading at verse 36. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city of which they say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword and the famine and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in my great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. Okay, God actually did that where Babylon is concerned. They were 70 years in Babylon, and then he brought them back. They rebuilt their temple. They rebuilt their walls. 
But then look at what else he says about that. He goes beyond just this promise to Judah. Verse 38, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. And I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. The fields shall be bought in this land of which you say it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. And then he goes on and describes the blessing that is coming to Judah and Benjamin. Okay, so they will be his people. He will be their God. And notice what he's going to do for them. Not only is he going to make an everlasting covenant with them, but then he's going to promise not to turn away from them because he's going to change them from within, rejoice over them, faithfully plant them in that land. And he's going to do this with all his, this great language of God, with all my heart and soul. He really means this, despite the fact that he's punishing them currently. Now, that theme that is so prominent here in Jeremiah is all the way through the Old Testament. And we're going to spend the rest of the night just looking at similar Old Testament passages. And I have literally just this embarrassment of riches. I could keep you here till 10 o'clock I'm just going to read really fast. I only have six pages of notes, and we're also going to read straight out of the Bible. So there's just so much said about this. And it starts all the way back at Moses with the law, back in the book of Deuteronomy. Listen to God talking in Deuteronomy as he is giving the law to Israel. Deuteronomy 30, starting at verse 1, I'm going to read to verse 8. So it will be when all these things have come upon you, The blessings and the curse, because God knew they were not going to keep the law. The curses that he prescribed were also going to happen. And when all that's happened, the blessing and the curse which I have placed before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord has scattered you, he's taking them at this moment to the promised land. He's about to plant them in their land the first time. And he already says to them, And I'm going to scatter you to the nations. He knows what's going to happen. So when it comes to your mind in all the nations where the Lord has scattered you and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul in accordance with everything that I am commanding you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord has scattered you. If any of your scattered countrymen are at the very ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. And he will be good to you and make you more numerous than your fathers. 
Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul so that you may live. And the Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you and persecute you. And you will again obey the Lord and follow his commandments, which I am commanding you today. So God predicted way in advance that not only were they not going to keep the law, but that he was going to scatter them. And right in that had the promise of, and I'll go and get you. I'll regather you. I don't care if you're at the ends of the earth. I'll find you. I'll regather you. I'll bring you back. That's all the way back in the law in Deuteronomy. It's even in the Psalms. Turn to Psalm 106 for just a moment. Or you can just listen. There's going to be a lot of turning and a lot of Bible reading. Psalm 106, I'm going to read from verses 40 to verse 48. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his inheritance. And then he gave them into the hand of the nations, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in his counsel, and so sank down in their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant for their sake. And relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. And he also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in thy praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. And let all the people say amen Praise the Lord. So even in the Psalms, there is this prayer and prediction of regathering to come. Psalm 147.2 says, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. The Lord builds up Jerusalem and he gathers the outcasts of Israel. Psalm 107, the first three verses say, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy is everlasting. The redeemed of the Lord shall say so. Those whom he redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered from all the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. So that theme is in the law, that theme is in the psalm, in the poetry, in the writings And it's significantly in the prophets. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. I'm going to read 17 verses. I'm just going to try to read it out and just let the word say what it says. It is very plain. It doesn't need a bunch of my commentary. But listen to the similarity between what Isaiah predicted and what Jeremiah predicted. Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see 
nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod from his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt around his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And the little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of a cobra, and the wean child will put his hand into a viper's den, and they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then it will come about in that day when all that stuff happens— are animals still uh, eating other animals? Oh, yeah. Uh, are children playing with cobras? No. No. So this is a day that's yet to come. And then, in that day, says verse 10, when that is the reality that God's righteousness and the knowledge of God is covering the earth, then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. And then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover a second time with his own hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and will assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And then the jealousy of Ephraim, the northern tribes, will depart, and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, and Judah will not harass Ephraim. And they will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines to the west. Together they will plunder the sons of the east. They will possess Edom and Moab, and the sons of Ammon will be subject to them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. And he will wave his hand over the river with his scorching wind. And he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who were left, just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. Does that need commentary? Are we pretty clear on that? Mm -hmm. This promise just keeps coming up and coming up and coming up. Isaiah 27, verses 12 and 13 say, On that day the Lord will thresh from the flowing stream of the Euphrates River to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up. One by one, you sons of Israel, and it will come about also on that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. Isaiah 43, the first seven verses say, Now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, O Jacob, and who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you go through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. 
When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place, because you are precious and honored in my sight. And because I love you, and I will give men in exchange for you and nations in place of your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And I will say to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone called by my name and created for my glory, whom I have indeed formed and made. The word is so very plain that all I have to do is read it. It tells one story over and over again, which is God faithfully is going to restore Israel and Judah. Turn to Isaiah 54 for a moment. Or don't. You can just sit there and stare at me if you'd like. (laughs) Isaiah 54. I'm going to read the first 10 verses. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and they will resettle the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. Neither feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah should not flood the earth again. In the same way, I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed, and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. What do those passages mean? Put them all together, and they're telling one very consistent story that God has blinded Israel, has turned from them in his wrath, and yet because of his covenants, his promises, his compassion, and his everlasting loving kindness, he is not going to abandon them altogether once and for all. He's going to call them, gather them, restore them on their own soil in their own land. Have I said anything the Bible doesn't say? No. No, because most of tonight has just been the Bible. 
And this is a far cry from so much of what we're reading on social media right now about how God has given up on Israel and these emotional arguments about, well, you know, the, the Jews right now hate Christians, so they're not God's people. They hate Christians because they've been blinded, but that blindness is temporary, according to Paul, and they are going to be regathered and reestablished, just like all the prophets have said. You just have to get the big overview of the Bible, and it's just not that difficult to understand. Okay, that was Isaiah. We're going to Ezekiel now. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20, I'm going to start reading in verse 33. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. And I shall bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm with wrath poured out, and I shall bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I shall enter into judgment with you face to face, as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord, and I shall make you pass under the rod. That was a way of determining and counting sheep. I will make you pass under the rod, and I shall bring you into the bond of my covenant, and I shall purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I shall bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. But as for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go, serve everyone his idols, but later you will surely listen to me. And my holy name you will not profane any longer with your gifts and with your idols. For on my holy mountain and on the high mountain of Israel, declares the Lord God, there the whole house of Israel, all of them, will serve me in the land. And there I will accept them. And there I will seek your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all of your holy things as a soothing aroma. I shall accept you, and thus I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered, and I shall prove myself holy among you in the sight of all the nations. And you will know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the land which I swore to give to your forefathers. And there you will remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evil things you have done. God's going to bring them to repentance. And then you will know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my own name's sake. That's why God is doing this, for his own namesake, for his own glory, for his own faithfulness to his own promises and covenants, not according to your evil ways or according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel." Isn't that kind of the answer to this argument of, well, the Jews today hate Christians? Well, yeah, right, they do. And eventually God's going to cause them to repent of that. 
They're going to loathe themselves for the way that they were. He's going to bring them back to their own land for his own namesake, and he's not going to deal with them according to their evil ways or their corrupt deeds. O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Do I need to expand on that? No, it says exactly what it says. Ezekiel 28, verses 25 and 26 says, This is what the Lord God says. When I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they have been scattered, I will show myself holy among them in the sight of all the nations. And then they will dwell in their own land, which I have given to my servant Jacob. And they will dwell securely, build houses and plant vineyards. They will dwell securely when I execute judgments against all those around them who treat them with contempt, and then they will know that I am the Lord their God. Ezekiel 34 says, starting in verse 11, for this is what the Lord God says, behold, I myself will search for my flock and seek them out as a shepherd looks for his scattered sheep when he is among the flock. So I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places in which they were scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples, from the Goyim. I will gather them from all the countries and bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture. And on the lofty mountains of Israel will be their grazing land. And there they will lay down in the good grazing land, and they will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will tend my flock and make them lay down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the strays, bind up the broken, and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd them with justice. Ezekiel 34, starting at verse 25, just later in that same chapter. And I will make with them a covenant of peace and rid the land of wild animals so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the forest. Does that kind of sound like what he promised Isaiah? That no animals were going to hurt or harm in all his holy mountain. I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing. And I will send down showers in season, showers of blessing. The trees of the field will give their fruit, and the land will yield its produce. My flock will be secure in their land. And then they will know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bars of their yoke and delivered them from the hands that enslaved them. And they will no longer be prey for the nations, and the beasts of the earth will not consume them. And they will dwell securely, and no one will frighten them. And I will raise up for them a garden of renown." And they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. And then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. You are my flock, the sheep of my pasture, my people, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. Seems pretty plain to me. Oh, but wait, there's more. Ezekiel 36, starting at verse 16. 
Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, when the people of Israel lived in their land, they defiled it by their own ways and their deeds. Their behavior before me was like the uncleanness of a woman's impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them because of the blood that they had shed on the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. So I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered throughout the lands. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of Yahweh, and yet they leave his land. But I had concern for my own holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they had gone. Therefore, tell the house of Israel that this is what the Lord God says It is not for your sake that I will act, O house of Israel, but for my holy name, which you profaned among the nations to which you went. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name that you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord Yahweh, declares the Lord God, when I show my holiness in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations and gather you from all the countries and I will bring you back into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to carefully observe my ordinances. And then you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. You will be my people. I will be your God. Are you getting a feel for this? Because I'm not done. I'm a long way from done. I'm not going to get through all this tonight. In Ezekiel 37, that's the famous passage of the dry bones. And what is God's conclusion once Ezekiel has prophesied to the dry bones and they've become alive again? God says, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Who's that? The ten northern tribes. Because they've been scattered. Because they've been dried up. Look, they are saying our bones are dried up and our hope is perished and we are cut off. That's what so much of the church says about them. That, yeah, they've lost their heritage, they've been scattered, they've intermarried, they don't know who they are anymore, and so therefore we're completely cut off. Therefore, prophesy and tell them, in contradistinction to what so many online theologians claim, you tell them God says this. Therefore, prophesy and tell them that this is what the Lord God says. Oh, my people, I will open your graves and bring you up from them, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Further on in Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel is told to take two sticks And write on each of them for Judah and for Ephraim. 
and then to take those two sticks, join them in his hand, and when people ask, what's the significance of these two sticks, this is what you're going to say. Ezekiel 37, starting at verse 18. When the people ask you, won't you explain to us what you mean by these? You are to tell them that this is what the Lord God says. I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will put them together with the stick of Judah, and I will make them a single stick, and they will become one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand and in full view of the people, you are to tell them that this is what the Lord God says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations to which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel, and one king will rule over them. And they will no longer be two nations and will never again be divided into two kingdoms. And they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or their detestable images or with any of their transgressions. And I will save them from all their apostasies by which they sinned and I will cleanse them. And then they will be my people and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd over all of them. They will follow my ordinances and keep and observe my statutes. They will live in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. And they will live there forever with their children and their grandchildren, and my servant David will be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant I will establish them and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord that sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is among them forever. Oh, by the way, I could go on. Ezekiel 39, starting at verse 25. I'll just read four verses there. After declaring judgment against all of the nations that have come against Israel, verse 25 of Ezekiel 39 says, Therefore, this is what the Lord God says, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on all the house of Israel. I will be jealous for my holy name. They will forget their disgrace and all their treachery which they have perpetrated against me when they live securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. And when I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall show myself holy through them in the sight of many nations. And then they will know that I am the Lord their God because I made them go into exile among the nations. And then I gathered them again to their own land and I will leave none of them there any longer. I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord. Are we getting a feel for what God's plan is for Israel? Are we getting a feel for what the Bible says God's plan is for Israel? You know, the minor prophets talk the same way. Zechariah 10. You don't have to turn there. I'm nearly done with Tonight, the clock's working against me. 
Zechariah 10, starting at verse 6, says, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. Those are the northern tribes. I will restore them because I have compassion on them, and they will be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Ephraim will be like a mighty man, and their hearts will be glad as with wine. Their children will see it and be joyful. Their hearts will rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them to gather, for I have redeemed them, and they will be as numerous as they once were. And though I sow them among the nations, they will remember me in those distant lands. They and their children will live and return, and I will bring them back from Egypt, and I will gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to Gilead and Lebanon until no more room is found for them. They will pass through the sea of distress and strike the waves of the sea. All the depths of the Nile will dry up. The pride of Assyria will be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt will depart. But I will strengthen them, says the Lord, and in his name they will walk. Am I done? No! No! Micah! Not that Micah. (laughs) Prophet Micah says in chapter 2, verse 11... I will certainly assemble all of you, Jacob. I will certainly gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with people. The one who breaks through goes up before them. They break through, they pass through the gate, and they go out by it, so their king passes on before them, and Yahweh will be at their head. He's going to be the foremost among them. They're going to follow him again. Turn to Zephaniah. See if you can find Zephaniah. I'll close with this. By the way, What I just read out of Micah while you're searching for Zephaniah, what I just read where God said, I will certainly assemble all of you, Jacob. I will certainly gather the remnant of Israel. I think that's part of what inspired Paul in Romans 9 to declare that all Israel was going to be saved. Paul's understanding of it is that Israel was blinded, but he says their blindness is in part because he knows all these promises of God. Remember, the only scripture that he had as he was preaching and writing these things was the very scripture we're reading right now, what we call the Old Testament. So he knows all of these promises of God about the faithfulness of God to Israel. And so he says that God blinded them so that the gospel of Jesus would go to the Gentiles, but that that fact would make Israel jealous And then after the times of the Gentiles have passed, then all Israel will be saved. And I don't think he's saying every individual who was ever an Israelite, because we can certainly point to Israelites like the Pharisees who Jesus condemned and said that their sin of blasphemy was never going to be forgiven, not in this age or the age to come. So there are some Israelites who are not going to be saved, obviously. 
But all 12 tribes are going to be regathered. All 12 tribes are going to be saved. All of Israel is going to be established again. And I believe that's what Paul is saying when he said all Israel will be saved because it's within the context in Romans 9 of talking about the Abrahamic covenant, the consistency of that covenant, and God keeping that land promise to Israel. Did you find Zephaniah? Mm -hmm. Zephaniah 3. This seems like a good place to close up the night. I'm going to start reading at verse 12, even though I'm just so tempted to read this whole... Okay, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. Isn't that exactly the way she's being described right now online? That's true. That's right. Yeah, she's rebellious at this very moment. And Zephaniah admits that. God knows that. They are a rebellious, hard-hearted people. Verse 3, her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening. They leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The Lord is righteous within her. He will do no injustice. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their corner towers are in ruins. I have made their streets desolate with no one passing by. Their cities are laid waste without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will revere me. Accept instruction. So her dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed concerning her. But they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. So God says, I've cut off their enemies. I've conquered for them. And yet they would not worship me. They continue in their rebellion. Verse 8, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to the prey. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Does that sound like Peter writing? That the end of this earth is going to be a conflagration. For then I will give to the peoples purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. In that day, you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud exalting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain." But I will leave among you a humble and a lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they shall feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. 
Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts, and they will come to you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Behold, I am going to deal at that time with all of your oppressors. I will save the lame, I will gather the outcast, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. Even at that time, I will gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Seems like a good place to wrap up for the evening. So what have we learned tonight? Well, what I hoped to show you was that the promise of God is not just in one place, It's in a whole bunch of places. And that's the pared down version of my notes. I spent most of the afternoon just trying to figure out what were the most pertinent passages to follow after. Because this is a very, very consistent promise throughout the Old Testament that I think inspired the New Testament writing, as I've already said. And so far from God being finished with Israel or finished with the Jews, It is true that they are Christ-haters today. It is true that they are rebellious today. And yet, how many times did we read God saying, you're rebellious, I know it, you're rebellious, that's what you're like. When I gave you my law and brought you into the land in the first place, I said right at the very beginning, now when the blessings and the cursings have all come on you, because I know you're going to be like that. I'm going to do all of these things for you, and because you are rebellious, I'm going to redeem you. I am the redeemer of Israel. Jesus Christ, when he was on the planet, was declared to be redeemer of Israel. And I don't know why that's so difficult for the modern church to grasp, because they say, well, he's my redeemer. He's my savior. Yes, because you were adopted in. But he is also Israel's savior and Israel's redeemer. He is the God of Israel. He keeps using that That language, he is the king of Israel. He will be their God. They will be his people. As often as we saw that promise, at what point, biblically speaking, did God change his mind and decide, no, never mind, they won't be my people and I won't be their God? Never happened. Never happened. It's nowhere in the scripture. And so, as we're watching what's happening in the Middle East right now, And as people are lining up for or against Israel, I understand that much of that is politics. But we should never use what's going on in the world today as a contrary argument to what the Bible says. 
The scripture, the word of God, declares over and over and over again God's faithfulness to Israel. And as I've said for so many years, that's how you want him to be because you want him to be that faithful to you. Yes. And if he can say all that to Israel and then change his mind, you have no security. But if he can say all that to Israel in their utter rebellion, then even you in your rebellion can be saved by a God that is that phenomenally graceful or gracious, whichever of those two words you prefer. So, think I got it all in in one night? I didn't even have to do a whole lot of commentary because the word just says what it says, and I hope it convinced you. Questions, comments, feedback? I'm sorry, say that again, I didn't hear I said, with it being so inarguable, and I certainly agree, the, the evidence that you know we examined tonight seems to be vast and, and just such clear language, it's not ambiguous. Why do you think it is that there just doesn't seem to be this understanding from people in the church that otherwise seem to take the scripture for what it says, they understand soteriology, and a lot of other aspects of the scripture, why don't they seem to get that part that's so obvious? Well, I can't answer for them and say why, but I just keep standing on what the word of God says. It just says it, but I can't give you a good answer for why people deny it. There's no question that it's a denial. In fact, I would go so far as to say that their denial of it is a denial of the perspicuity of Scripture. Scripture is clear, as we heard tonight. Scripture is clear. It says what it says, but they don't want it to say what it says. So they argue that it needs to be spiritualized or that it needs to be reinterpreted some way or allegorized because their overarching theologies can't allow Scripture to say what it says. So they end up denying it. And I think that's a scary place to be. I just know that every single day on uh, social media, I see things that just make me shake my head and think, what Bible are you reading? And then when you're reading it, what's going on in your head that you won't allow it to say what it says? Why they do that, I have no explanation. Have you ca- How many times... Does it say it's going to gather in the Bible? You read a lot of them. Yeah. And we need to hear things over and over and over and over. Uh-huh. Um, I wonder how many scriptures you read a lot of them that it talks about Israel is scattered and now it's going to be regathered. Hmm. How many times do you think it was in it? Oh, I didn't keep count tonight. I didn't have a clicker or yeah, anything. I didn't, but... A lot. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. You know, I'll leave you with this story. The day that I was going to be ordained, David Morris and Elder Ward and I were sitting in the hotel here in Nashville. And uh, David commented to Elder, he said, you know, Jim is uh, very strong on future for Israel. And so I said to Elder Ward, how many times, because I knew how often it was said in the Bible, I said, how many times does God have to say something in order for it to be true? An elder leaned in, tamped down his pipe, and said, only once. 
Okay, well, if something is true, if God says it once, how many times did we see it tonight? Time and time and time and time and time again. So God clearly means it. Why people don't accept it, it's between them and God. But yeah. I have no explanation for it. It's clear to so many people. Yeah. Yeah, it could be. It makes it hard for me to listen to them, though. I will say that. You know, when, when Paul summarizes this, of course, in Romans 11, his conclusion about this, about restoring Israel, yeah. is that, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past, past finding out. out. So, in some sense, he's saying about this that it's deep, it's rich, it's unsearchable, and its ways are past finding out. I think that's what people, as plain as it is, people still, because they're almost limiting God to some degree where they say, well, we know God has this plan of salvation, but it can't be to that degree. Like, he can't be keeping promises yeah. for that long right. in a physical sense, you know. And that takes you back to, is anything too hard for God? Well, good. I like all these comments. I stimulated your thinking. It doesn't help that the Catholic Church has such a deep history in anti-Semitic thought. Oh, yeah. Anti-Semitism is part of the history of Christianity. Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. And it's alive and well today online. Mm -hmm. That won't make it to the Internet, but there you go. listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.